Hello and welcome to The Stack. On this week's show, we discuss the future of travel with Jesse Ashlock from Condé Nast Traveler, plus the return of iconic rock and roll title Cream and the celebrated Malay title Process. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show with Jesse Ashlock, Deputy Global Editorial Director for Condé Nast Traveler. Last time we spoke, the travel industry was still in distress because of COVID-19, but now it's certainly back on track. The magazine, which has just published two of their most celebrated issues, Future of Travel and Reader's Choice Awards, is always on the pulse when it comes to find new destinations. Jesse tells me more about the issues and his plans for the title in 2023. Yeah, I mean, it's been a great stretch for us. These have both been excellent brand moments, but also I think celebrations of the fact that people are traveling, you know, like meaningful, globetrotting way once again. Travel has, I wouldn't say, returned to a true state of normalcy. Obviously, there are the challenges at the airports. The airlines are not operating exactly the way they were in 2019. China's still closed, but we're a lot closer to normal than we were last year and certainly two years ago, and people are traveling accordingly. The two brand moments that you mentioned, the Reader's Choice Awards, which is 35 years old. We did our 35th one this November, or we rolled it out in October. It's the November print issue. Reflects uh, where you all are going, your favorites, the best hotels, resorts, countries, cities in the world. And then the other moment, the future of travel, is a celebration of the brand's 35th anniversary. And we opted not to do a sepia-tinted, dusty look back at 35 years in the history of Traveler, but to look ahead at perhaps the next 35 years and where Traveler is headed and where we might find ourselves on a future anniversary. Well, let's start talking about future of travel, because one thing I like, I have to say, when people talk about travel, and I'm not talking here about Condé Nast Traveler, in the future, there's usually sometimes quite a negative tone. But I think we'll never stop traveling. Things will change. But I am surprised about, you know, how optimistic it is and how innovative, you know, new trends, new way, not necessarily just going to space, you know, but important brands like the Habitus Group, which I believe they were featured in the edition as well. Is that your intention when when you think about future of travel? Yeah, I mean, I would like to say that I think in general, we are clear eyed about the challenges that face the world and by extension travelers, but we are optimistic about where we're going. And I think one of the reasons you got that feeling from the issue, I hope, is that we weren't talking about travel and the future of travel purely from a technological perspective. Certainly it's there and it's important, space travel you mentioned, and that's definitely a big thing. But we also talked about what brands are doing to be more inclusive, gender neutral uniforms, about sustainability innovations, a hotel, a six census hotel in Norway, that it will be energy positive when it opens. We talked about citizen science and the role that travelers can play in combating climate change and making the world a better place. So I think when you look at the future in terms of people and not just things, then you wind up with a more optimistic framing of where we're going. And I believe in people, our brand believes in people. If you believe in people, you can't help but be optimistic. 
I love little things as well. For example, there was a session about African drinks as well, which is quite interesting. And, you know, because, you know, travel is also about food, is about lifestyle. I think it involves all their aspects as well, right? One of the things I love to say to people about covering travel is that travel is adjacent to everything. And it's an important point of distinction for our brand, I think. You know, like we believe that travel happens not in a bubble, but in the world, right? And so therefore it is connected to food and drink. It is connected to architecture and design, urban planning, conservation, education, employment, everything. It's all fair game when you're talking about travel. And I think that one of the really interesting things about the last two and a half years is that people have seen that more for themselves because they've seen the consequences of travel going away in terms of economies, in terms of environmental impact, in terms of you know people's livelihoods. So I think that the more we understand that travel is something that is connected to life on earth and not its own separate private thing, the better for everybody. I definitely agree with you. And, you know, to a Reader's Choice Awards now, which I, you know, I love looking at the rankings and, and I particularly love the countries and cities because, you know, you kind of see the trend of where people are planning to go or places that they love. And in countries in particular, the strength of Portugal is amazing, right? I mean, Japan was not too far off at number two, but that's quite interesting because, you know, a fairly small country. But even here in Monaco, we're always surprised, you know, how Portugal always does well in kind of rankings like this. Yeah, I feel like Portugal, people discovered Portugal. I mean, look, Europeans have known about Portugal for a long time, <laughs> of course. But I think Portugal really began to resonate in a new way. I think it was maybe seven or so years ago, certainly for the American traveler. And people are still discovering it. It's, I think, consistent with a kind of travel that was very popular in 2021. I think beginning in about the summer of 21 and still is, which is the warm weather European vacation. And you'll notice that Italy and Greece were also in the top 10 on countries. And we have seen anecdotally, like our readers just going and taking island and beach vacations in the med in Europe. That's been a very, very popular rebound vacation for American travelers who did the domestic thing, you know, in 2020, like took a couple of road trips and now they're trying to figure out like, okay, we're going to, you know, book a, a week long vacation. Where should we go? We're going to go to Portugal. We're going to go to Italy. You mentioned Japan. And I thought that was interesting too. New Zealand is also on the list, as you may have noticed. And obviously, let's be frank, like not a lot of our voters were actually able to visit those countries during the last year. And so I think that those picks reflect where people were before the pandemic and where they're planning on going back. I think that those votes show that people are booking trips to Japan and New Zealand right now. And that's where people are going in 2023. And I think that's indicative of the fact that long haul, bucket list, ambitious, big ticket trips are going to be a major trend in 2023. And when you look at the rankings, does it kind of influence your coverage, perhaps even for next year? You see, oh my God, my readers, they definitely want to go to Portugal or perhaps, you know, there are a few surprises here and there say, oh, we haven't done perhaps too much Croatia. Maybe we should look into that. Does this also kind of reflect to have the meetings after getting the results? Oh, 100%. But also we're looking to cover the winning destinations in ways that reflect what people want from travel right now or the changes in behavior. And so you in the print issue for the RCAs, we had a little piece accompanying Japan's place on the best countries list, talking a little bit more about the out of doors in Japan, national parks, the nature. I mean, everybody 
who goes to Japan is going to go to the cities. But I think uh, there's a greater interest in in this very dense country, in these places of great beauty and tranquility. And so I think that the traveler to Japan who might have just gone to Tokyo and Kyoto before might be now also wanting to package in, you know, a trip to see there are like three extraordinary national parks in Hokkaido, for example, you know, and I think that's, you know, something that a far greater percentage of travelers want the wide open spaces, the natural beauty, the sense of restoration that you can get from that kind of experience. So yes, it's like, let's cover the places that people are going to in ways that they wouldn't expect, but that give them what they want. And Jesse, I have to say, for me, I'm a print guy. I love the monthly printed edition. But I have to say, you guys do also an amazing job online. So to be honest, it's the kind of, oh my God, I'm, let's say I'm going to Munich. I'll, I'll type Munich, Condenas Traveler. And there's usually like a very kind of compact list of the places to go. I think you guys, you do this brilliantly. And also your newsletters as well. Are they doing well? Because I think they're so kind of efficient, especially for a traveler, of course. Oh, yeah. Thank you for saying that, Fernando. I really appreciate it. Yes, the newsletters are going fast. The guides uh, like Munich that you're talking about are service content around destinations through the Kanye Nast Traveler lens, reflecting the kinds of values that we have as a brand that I was talking about earlier are kind of our bread and butter. And that's a real growth area for us as we look ahead to what we want to deliver to our audience next year and beyond. We want to have more comprehensive, regularly updated destination coverage that gives you that information for a destination pops into your head. It's Tasmania, it's, <laughs> you know, Bhutan. You type it in and you get what you need from the Condé Nast Traveler point of view. And I should add that our closer partnerships with our partners around the world, our Condé Nast Traveler partners around the world, all of our editions and our offices puts us in an even better position to do that effectively. Yeah, definitely. I've been noticing this since there's been a few changes at Condenas Traveler that, you know, you're using quite a lot of locals as well, which is quite interesting. Of course, they have a very good understanding of what's happening in their region. Last year, we adopted the new tagline, the world made local. And I think as, you know, it's sat with me over the last year and change, I have felt more and more like we made a great decision in, in adopting that slogan. I think that it really, really encapsulates our philosophy that travel is a global enterprise but one that is deeply connected to localities and local people. And if you forget the locals, then you got nothing. Absolutely. And what's next for 2023? Are you excited? I'm sure the travel industry is going to do even better than they did this year. And the magazine is still preparing amazing editions ahead. Yes, I'm very excited about 2023. We have a lot planned. I think the most exciting thing of all is that you know, we get a, another year forward away from that terrible moment in early 2020. And I know that the pandemic is something that we will continue to have to live with and navigate. It's not like going to vanish. It obviously, it's, it's never going to vanish entirely. But we're like, we've learned how to live and travel largely with it. And for travelers, things will just keep on getting better. For the brand, we have, besides our just incredible storytelling and our print editions, we have increased guide coverage, like I was talking about. We have some really exciting video plans that we kind of planted the seeds for in 2022. We launched a new series in 2022 called A Typical Experience. We kicked it off with afternoon tea in London, and it's meant to take you inside the kind of classic things that you would like to do as a traveling place, whether it's like a Ryokan in Japan or, you know, what have you. We did a an initial future of travel video with Sir Richard Branson talking about all of the progressive things that he's done throughout the course of his career. That's also going to be a video series. We have plans to launch a major guide around destination weddings to help planners 
and attendees of those kinds of events. We just relaunched our Women Who Travel podcast, and it is so excellent. I encourage your audience to listen to the first episode of the Relaunch podcast hosted by Articles Director Lali Arkoglu. So that will continue, and then we'll be adding new content to that vertical as well, new franchises and new stuff in 2023. So I think if you're a fan, there'll be a lot for you. And if you're not a fan, you should be. Thank you very much, Jesse. And Condenas Traveler is always a reader of choice for me. And now to the world of rock and roll. When the magazine Cream was launched in March of 1969, it billed itself America's only rock and roll magazine. Through offering an alternative to mainstream music journalism when it hit newsstands, the publication's take on the genre was irreverent, blunt, and garnered legions of fans. The magazine took a pause in 1989, but now, for the first time in over 30 years, its newest print issue is available. Monaco's Maylee Evans spoke to John Martin, the CEO of Cring, to discuss the magazine's return. John began by detailing the magazine's illustrious history. We relaunched Cream in September of 2022. It was originally America's only rock and roll magazine from 1969 to 1989. It had an amazing crew of writers and journalists that came out of it, everyone from Lester Bangs to Cameron Crowe to Jan Uzelski. The list goes on and on. And Cream was the first magazine to use both the terms punk and heavy metal to describe bands. You know, so Cream was always the counterculture to the Rolling Stone mainstream music coverage. And they had a really devoted fan base for those 20 years, sort of that golden era. And it was this really beloved brand that people, you know, wished still existed. And, you know, over the last 30 years, there hasn't really been a brand or a, an outlet an entertainment property to really champion rock and roll. And, you know, I think we've seen the, the results of that is there's a perception that rock and roll is dead and it doesn't exist. And that couldn't be further from the truth. So we felt the pendulum was swinging and it was high time that we brought back cream. Excellent. You say that apparently rock is dead. So is print is right there on your front cover. <laughs> Tell me a bit about the artist and sort of what was the statement you wanted to make with that first issue back on the shelves? So we talked a lot about what's on the cover. I mean, it's always the biggest conversation for a magazine. Anyone who works in magazines, you know, it's what's on the cover, what's on the cover. And, you know, we started talking a lot about, is there a band or a musician who should be on the first cover of Cream? And we came to the conclusion that there wasn't really a band or an artist in the traditional sense of a cover star that should be on the magazine. So we decided, let's do something different. Let's not have a band on the cover. Cream was coming back. And, you know, there were some gatekeepers in the industry that kind of didn't believe us. And they said, you know, we'll give you access to our artist, but only if it's for a cover story. And that was pretty repulsive to myself and the editorial staff that someone would even ask that. I get it. They're doing their job, but it was gross. You know, we said, well, sorry, we're not putting anyone on the cover. So this is the only way for us to work together is an article in the issue if you're interested in that. And it was interesting to see there were some people that stuck to their guns and, you know, we didn't cover them. And there's some people who said, oh, yeah, we just have to ask. And yeah, I get it. We went with a new work by Raymond Pettibone 
who was, you know, pre-legendary artist, started out in punk world doing Black Flag, went on to do Sonic Youth, one of my favorite bands, Annihilation Time. And then he also did massive things like the Foo Fighters. But he's a fine artist now. And he's known now more for sort of his watercolor type paintings. You know, but we had him do sort of his original pen and ink, white and black, or paintings that were the lingua franca of the punk visuals in the early 80s. And we felt that that was a very appropriate bridge from sort of the first era of cream to now. And, you know, Pettibone was always known for his kind of cryptic words on his paintings. And we talked with him about what it could be. And, you know, we, we knew we wanted to make a statement sort of confronting the almost critics that would say, wait, you're relaunching a magazine and it's about rock and roll. Those are two like dinosaur concepts. And it's not at all because this isn't actually just a magazine and rock and roll isn't just dead. You know, this is a subscription business. This is an entertainment business. And rock and roll is huge when you look at all the subgenres and you put them all back together. Rock and roll is like, you know, a splintered, massively popular world, but everyone has their own little niche. You know, whether you're a fan of Metallica or you're a fan of Haim, you're both rock and roll fans. I wondered sort of about that challenge because you'll have, I guess, the readers who who remember the magazine the first time round. It has a very fond and, and special place in, in their heart. And then you also have a new readership who kind of are coming to the magazine completely sort of fresh. What was that challenge like in kind of ensuring that there was enough in that DNA from the original magazine whilst also recognising that times have changed, audiences have changed, and I suppose the magazine not feeling like an ode or nostalgic? Well, we want to piss everyone off. You know, the older audience who might remember it, you know, we want to give them enough to sort of tip their hat to a lot of, you know, this is something that I recognize from my younger years. This is why I liked it. So there's features in there, Cream Dream, Stars Cars, the Cream Profile that existed, you know, 30, 40 years ago. But we also want to do a lot of new stuff. And it's not just a nostalgia driven soft light 70s magazine here. This is a modern rock and roll magazine. It's not a modern rock magazine, but it is, you know, we do cover artists that are the majority of artists we cover are actually, you know, from the modern era. For the new audience, we want to piss them off because they've never seen anything like this. They have not seen writing and journalism in the last 20 years in the music space that was really anything but regurgitated press releases. You know, I'm 42, right? I remember that first wave of whether it was internet sites kind of coexisting with like the last wave of great print magazines that actually had voice and, you know, were a little cheeky and, you know, it wasn't all just puff pieces and it was really fun to read. We make the joke a lot, like, when was the last time you laughed when you read about music? Like rock and roll specifically, is ridiculous. I mean, it is, it's a primal caveman-esque, you know, professional wrestling form of entertainment. The ridiculousness of it, whether, you know, you're a very serious artist or not, the ridiculousness of it is where the fun lies. And we want people to have fun when they read about their favorite artists or artists they've never heard of before. And if we can turn people on to new artists, whether that's from the past or from the present, mission accomplished. The magazine earned a reputation as as well as being sort of like a tastemaker and showing people, I guess, new artists, but it's the irreverence. So how do you keep that voice? Is it 
retaining some of those writers from that first wave? Is it making sure that writers really understand the tone that you're you're taking with this and kind of pushing them maybe past what they're used to writing? Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. Everyone asks us, who's the new Lester Bangs? And, you know, it's always like the question that makes the eyes roll because there is no new Lester Bangs, right? We have a lot of great writers who have their own voices and a lot of them probably never even read Lester Bangs. They're like a generation and a half or two generations later, right? But the influence is there and that influence is calling it as you see it, telling the truth, not dumbing it down for the audience and, you know, speaking with your audience like they're your friend at the bar. And that's the most important way of storytelling is, you know, really breaking it down, your opinions and what you're picking up from the artist in a way that is honest and truthful. Because look, young people can, you know, their bullshit detectors are pretty finely tuned, right? The problem is they've come to expect that everyone's bullshitting them. And, you know, with Cream, we're saying, no, this is, you know, we're just like you, right? You could probably write for Cream if you do it in an honest way. You're trying to tell a story to your friends and make your friends laugh. You're not doing a book report, right? You're not writing this for school. You're not writing this. You don't work for the record company. So, you know, we cultivate those voices and we do a thing called the thumb test. If you put your thumb over the logo, is it visibly a Cream piece? You know, and that's everything from the photography to the headline, to the lead, to the captions, to how the first graph reads, like, does it feel like a cream piece? If it doesn't pass the thumb test and it could run anywhere else, then it's not good enough for us. You know, we're not publishing a huge amount of content. We do a quarterly magazine and then we do two digital pieces a week. I mean, there's very few websites that do that because they're fundamentally different business. They're ad-driven, click-driven, and we're subscription-driven. So it's all about high-quality brands, like the best cream content that couldn't exist anywhere else. Like, what is the point of us putting out, you know, if Turnstile's going on tour and they drop their new tour dates, what's the point of us posting that? There's no point because 30 other sites already did it. We're not offering anything new. We're just contributing to the noise. That's not what we want to do. We want to offer really high quality rock and roll content for people that actually care and know that this is the only place they're going to get that story. Joe Martin there in conversation with Maylee Evans. And there's an issue too coming out in December. Listeners can subscribe to the magazine at cream.com and you can follow on socials as well at creammag. And now we're heading to Malaysia. By day, Liu Konghui works as a tech analyst in Kuala Lumpur. He's also the founder and editor-in-chief of Process Magazine, a Malaysia-based publication that interviews artists and designers and celebrates the creative process. Monaco's Naomi Shu Elegant spoke with Konghui to hear more. I actually studied accounting back at university. So nothing directly related to the creative industry. But part of the reason why, you know, we started the magazine was because when we came back from abroad back in 2019, uh, you know, my friends and I were really quite curious about people within the creative scene here, you know, like artists, practitioners in general of art. But we couldn't really find a place, website or anything like that, that really explained their thought processes, their creative processes, or just the ups and downs of a creative career. So within ourselves, we just thought, why don't, why don't we actually do it ourselves? One thing led to another, and that's kind of how the magazine started now. 
So tell me about the first issue of the magazine. Like if someone just picked it up in a cafe or a bookstore, what kind of things could they be reading in it? So each issue, we actually have like a theme. So the first issue, the theme is called Scarcity by Design. And there, basically, we are kind of talking about how do you create out of limitations, right? I think within the creative scene, we're very familiar with limitations, be it like financial or like just having some sort of like constraints that you have to work around with. So we look to interview people who kind of manage to create something special through these limitations that they face. So I think in Malaysia or maybe perhaps, you know, in this part of the world, being in the art scene is definitely like a uphill challenge, be it from like supporting yourself or just getting the support that you need. From there, we actually based it off like many interviews that we have, long form interviews that we have with these artists. You know, we work closely with like artists to create like comic strips and also like a photo series within the magazine. So it really is kind of like an archive of the creative team in KL at that time. The second volume is titled Forms of Contemplation. Basically, we're kind of exploring the idea of doing nothing. I think like in our world, we always kind of champion hustle culture and you know, non-stop, like can't stop, won't stop working, that sort of thing. So what if we flip it on its head, right? I think for a lot of us, being idle or just having a chill day, that's kind of when your best ideas actually come about. You know, that literally on Reddit, there's such a thing called shower thoughts. So it's like literally people being in a shower and they get something really interesting, right? So yeah, we just took that idea and ran with it. All of our interviews are with artists that have kind of had this ethos within their work, namely people like Sharon Chin. I think her story really did inform what the magazine was about. So yeah, we have essays, interviews, comic strips once again, zine within the zine, features that are all related to this concept. Maybe you can tell me then a bit about Sharon Chin. So Sharon Chin is an artist based in Portlickson now. She used to be based in KL. And uh, back in 2011, she made the decision to move her entire life, her practice, everything to Portlickson which is this really chill coastal town in Negeri Sembilan, state in Malaysia. So, you know, for her, I think a lot of the thought behind this move was that when she was based in KL, she was just busy 24-7. She was writing a lot of like proposals for her art projects and stuff like that. So she just realized that she was just hampered by all these obligations and responsibilities that she felt she wasn't really growing too much as an artist. And the moment she actually moved to Port Dixon, that's where she had this abundance of time for the first time in her life or career as an artist. And she often credit this time that she was there being very instrumental for her to create her best work. So yeah, for me, when I first heard that story, I thought that was just so insane because I think at that time in my life and I think a lot of people like our age were going through, right? It was just, you know, every day we're just being told to like, or be productive or like stuff like that. So how, what would happen if we did the opposite, right? Could that something great come out of that? So that kind of, inform the second issue. Yeah. So what is your day job? I am actually an analyst at a tech company. So that kind of, yeah, that's one thing I do. And the other thing I do is process magazine. Yeah. What is it like to have such different roles? So something very creative, something very technical, and what motivates you to do this in your spare time when I'm assuming you have a very time demanding job? Right. I think for me, or I think probably perhaps a lot of people in our generation, a lot of what we do is all really software, right? We kind of don't really interact with real things anymore. Like everything is just on our phones or on computer. And like for me, same thing. Like, you know, I deal with like spreadsheets and like code and stuff like that. So I think creating a magazine, something so tactile and like not so ephemeral, I think is something that is really quite liberating or quite like fun to do. So that kind of really motivates me to create something that is lasts like forever, right? 
think very early on during our discussions whether or not we wanted to create like a website instead of like a print magazine. We knew that we wanted to create something that can last a long, long time. We don't have to worry so much about URLs expiring or like losing our Instagram account or something like that. We wanted to create something tactile, something that people can touch and feel and feel a connection to when it's something physical. So I think that's part of the reason why we went this route. Yeah. What was it like to find out how to distribute the magazine and where to sell it? And yeah, where, where do you sell the magazine? Right. So creating the magazine was actually the easy part. What happens after the magazine is out in the world is actually what we realized to be the extremely hard part. So when the first issue came out, uh, distribution was, you know, we initially thought like, oh, we would just be 100% like online. People would just buy it through our website or, you know, DM us on IG or something. Soon we realized like it's much better to actually allow people to feel it in store. After all, it is a physical product, right? So we reached out to a lot of art spaces and design stores first in our city, cafes and bars as well. After that as well, we were very keen to actually also put the magazine in a lot of magazine shops around the world. Right now, we are in places like London, in New York, Tokyo at one point. There's places around the world, Singapore. I think it's very important to actually share what Malaysia has to offer from the art scene and just the creative scene in general with the world. And I guess like that's how distribution uh, is very important to actually reach that goal. Thank you very much, Naomi and Lu Konghui from Process Magazine. That's it for this week's show. My thanks to our editor, David Stevens. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fpandmonaco.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday at 10 a.m. London time. Meanwhile, please subscribe to The Stack on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And before we go, a little song for you. Joe and Jet and the Black Hearts, I hate myself for loving you. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time. It's goodbye from me.